I love the energy in the room. Y'all probably know that I get to tactfully in a safe way talk about a nagging wife this morning. Um, Yep. So chapter, chapter 10 of the great divorce. Chapter 10 of the great divorce. Um, we're, we're exactly on schedule. If you're, if you're watching your schedule, we're exactly on schedule. If you don't have the schedule or that handout, if you joined us since then, just see me before you leave. I've got copies of those up here. Uh, both the cheat sheet on all the characters uh, that you're meeting and, um, and, and the schedule. But as the farmers say, we're getting in the short rows now. Uh, just a few um, vignettes left in the great divorce. So, chapter 10. It's a short chapter, so we can really look at it. Uh, by the way, I don't know if most of you have met our pastoral intern, Eli Yu. Um, it's your first time, I think, in here, right, Eli? Second time, okay. I may, did I introduce you the first time? Okay. Well, your memory is probably as bad as mine is. This is Eli. So, um, ch- turn to chapter 10. Turn to chapter 10. One of the things I do in my own private morning worship each day is um, I remind myself of my, my personal mission statement. And I encourage you to have one. You know, if your ancestors ask you what your personal mission statement is, I hope you can tell them what that is. Uh, but my personal mission statement that I remind myself of every morning is that um, uh, I, I do what I do to help people find fullness of life in Jesus Christ. Uh, I, um, people with the gift of evangelism do a much better job of bringing people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But once you're in, I want to help you find fullness of life in Jesus Christ. I, 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 I like to work, um, by the, like C.S. Lewis, by the way, he did a little bit with evangelism, but most of what he did was sanctifying the Christian community, help you growing in grace, help you find fullness of life in Jesus Christ. So um, even having the tendency to nag is really counterproductive to the spiritual life. And we'll talk about why that is such a deep, desperate issue. Why an addiction to control? Why an, an, an addiction to help straighten everybody out? Why an addiction to always wanting to speak your mind? Why, and e- even why an addiction to give advice? Uh, you've heard me say, if you've been around me a while, I don't give advice unless I ask. Now, if you put me in the pulpit, I assume I've been asked. <laughs> but otherwise... Um, even with my adult children, and it's hard sometimes, really hard. But knowing how to be in relationship with other people is a deeply spiritual issue. Um, all of what I just said leads me to say to people periodically, and ends up being a lot of clergy I've said this to over the years, I, I can't be your Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes they want me to. They want me just to tell them what to do, how to do it, when to do it. They would love me to straighten them out. And there are days I would like to straighten them out. (laughs) But at the end of the day, it is a spiritual issue. I can't be other people's Holy Spirit. I I don't want to be addicted to control. Uh, Because of what I believe in the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, you know, even in my own life, when I'm addicted to control, even regarding my own life, who gets pushed out of that sometimes is, is the Holy Spirit. So um, Robert's wife has a lot to remind us of in this text. She wasn't just a nuisance. There's a reason why at the What happened at the end? How, she didn't even go back to the bus. What happened at the end? 
She just sort of evaporated. She just disintegrated, evaporated, went away. Yeah, all of life has spiritual ramifications. So be careful having a, a, a religious department and a non-religious department. Because as soon as you kind of divide your life that way, it's the stuff you put in the non-religious department that will get you in trouble spiritually. Uh, you've got to, you know, what our goal is, is to um, convert all of our life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to turn all of our life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, uh, to sanctify all of our life to Jesus Christ. And that even includes these bothersome little habits that we have. I'm sure Robert would have said they were beyond bothersome in this text. Remember, Robert's the husband, who, by the way, you notice he's in heaven. My guess is while this vignette's going on, he's probably somewhere in heaven saying, please don't let her get at me. <laughs> but here she is getting to sort of test the hinterlands of, of heaven out. Um, one thing I do want to say real quickly, because even the Bible falls into this trap, and we'll look at, we'll look at some text out of Proverbs in a minute. Usually, usually when the Bible, like in the book of Proverbs, talks about someone nagging, it's almost always a wife. Um, so, And same with C.S. Lewis. Remember when C.S. Lewis wrote this, he had not married yet. He marries late in life. Um, he finally falls deeply in love with, with, with Joy Davidman. So at this point, he's just dealing with Mrs. Moore, his mother figure who I think is coming out in this story all over the place. Um, in, um, in, in, in The Problem of Pain, you meet a lady named, this is another one of, one of C.S. Lewis's works, because he, he, he touches on this kind of female periodically. And it gets him in trouble with moderns. Some people say he's misogynistic, he hates women. Well, again, he had never married he was at Oxford. He was at Maudlin College when it was not co-ed. He was in a male world. He wrote this in the 40s. Um, so I, I get it. But men can nag as well as women. Um, men can have the same addictions to control, can have the same addictions to giving advice, unsolicited advice. Uh, but anyway, in The Problem of Pain and another one of... Um, C.S. Lewis's earlier works, he talked about a Mrs. Fidget. And he talks about um, um, how Mrs. Fidget died. And the, the, the vicar, you may know in the Church of England, the Episcopal Church vicar is the pastor. And he says in uh, Problem of Pain, he says, The vicar says Mrs. Fidget is now at rest. Um, let us hope she is. What is quite certain is that her family, her fam her family's at rest. <laughs> Um, so he, these kind of characters sort of pop up. They do tend to be women. They do sort of pop up in C.S. Lewis's writings. So uh, lest you feel that he's um, piling on to the women, you know, I'll admit some men can do it too. They really do. I know some men that do it as poor. And, and actually, sometimes when the men do it, they expect you to follow orders, maybe better than some of the women do. But it's the same spiritual issue. That issue to control other people, that issue to be the Holy Spirit for other people, that issue to fix other people. I've known people marry other people so they could fix them. Uh, not, a good, not a good way to lead into marriage. Um, anyway, so with that, let's look at the text. It's a short text, chapter 10. This is the conversation that we also overheard. Remember, who's the we here? Uh, C.S. Lewis and, and his guide. So this is the, this is the conversation. Um, you, you get introduced to, to Robert's wife speaking. You're never given her name. She's speaking to Fran Hilda. That is quite, quite out of the question, said a female ghost to one of the bright women. I should not dream of staying if I'm expected to meet Robert. I'm sure Robert doesn't want her to stay either. I'm quite ready to forgive him, of course, but anything more is quite impossible. How he comes to be here, but that is your affair. 
But if you have forgiven him, said the other, surely I forgive him as a Christian, said the ghost. But there are some things one can never forget. C.S. Lewis one time says, um, you know, we talk about forgiveness and forgiveness is easy until we have something to forgive. And then we don't want to do it. But I don't understand, began the she-spirit. Again, the spirit are the people that are making their progress into heaven. The ghosts are the ones who just got off the bus. This lady, Robert's wife, is a ghost talking to a spirit. Exactly, said the ghost with a little laugh. You never did. You always thought Robert could do no wrong, I know. Please don't interrupt for one moment. Uh, You haven't the faintest conception of what I went through with your dear Robert, the ingratitude. It was I who made a man out of him, sacrificed my whole life to him. And what was my reward? Absolute, utter selfishness. No, but listen, he was pottering, or we'd probably say puttering along on about 600 a year when I married him. And mark my words, Hilda, he had been in that position to the day of his death if if it hadn't been for me. It was I who had to drive him. I'm sure she drove him. It was I who had to drive him every step of the way. He hadn't a spark of ambition. It was like trying to lift up a sack of coal. I had to positively nag him to take on that extra work in the other department, though it was was really the beginning of everything for him, the laziness of men. He said, if you please, he couldn't work more than 13 hours a day. As if I weren't working far longer, for my day's work wasn't over when his was. I had to keep him going all evening, if you understand what I mean. If he had had his way, he'd have just sat in an armchair and chair and sulked when dinner was over. It was I who had to draw him out of himself and brighten him up and make conversation with no help from him. Of course, sometimes he didn't even listen. As I said to him, I should have thought good manners. If nothing else, he seemed to have forgotten that I was a lady, even if I had married him, and all the time I was working my fingers to the bone for him, and without the slightest appreciation, I used to spend hours arranging flowers to make that pokey little house nice, and instead of thanking me, what do you think he said? He said he wished I wouldn't fill up the writing desk with them when he wanted to use it, and there was a perfectly frightful fuss one evening because I'd spilled over the vase, spilled one of the vases over some papers of his. It was all nonsense, really because they weren't anything to do with his work. He had some silly idea of writing a book in those days, as if he could. I cured him of that in the end. Uh, We'll stop there for a minute. Uh, Give me some adjectives for, for the wife and for Robert. Describe the wife and for Robert here. If they, if they came to you, which she wouldn't, he might out of desperation. If they came to you for marital counseling, what would you, asking you for advice, what would, what would you say to them? Somebody give me some wisdom. Give them a chance to be a man. Yeah, it sounds like she's sort of emasculating him. Taking away all of his energy, all of his effort. Taking away any desire for motivation. Any desire to engage. Yeah, I think she's exhausting. She apparently has no faults. And she's had no faults. Oh, no faults. Very insecure person. Which one, him or her? Her. Yeah, I think so. Possessive love. That was her job to straighten him out, fixing him. She needed to focus on her own life. I don't think, yeah, she needed to focus on her own life. Remember the other lady we met a while back in the chapter? You know, they're just trying to get her to think about something else other than herself. You know, she was focusing on her own life in a poor way. This lady has, has no gift of self-reflection. And some people have no gift of self-reflection. They can reflect on everybody around them, but they can't reflect on themselves. I don't know how he died, but he's probably thankful the Lord took him home. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll have to tell you a story. Listen, I've, I've got to do this very carefully. In one of my churches, and it wasn't the last one, um, so you can't figure it out, I had a lady that was a holy terror, all of us, including her husband, 
he died at a young age. Um, he, he was very much like Robert. But what I remember, besides what all he went through, and we talked, we met, we talked. and She, she by the way, and I have used her one other time in a sermon illustration, she was, by the way, the lady who kept saying to me, well, he pushes my buttons, they push my buttons. And I said, well, you need to just get control of your buttons. <laughs> but, you know, her husband pushed her buttons. It's all his fault. He died at a fairly young age. Now, um, I just played this again this Saturday night because I'd forgotten what the words were. Do you remember the old, I think it was a, kind of like a one-shot wonder back in the 60s. The, uh, the musician was named Greenbaum, I believe. Spirit in the Sky. You know, this, you know, I was playing in the presence of some other people, and I was telling them this, th- that song was used, was played one time at, at a recessional for a funeral I did. And they, their first response was, I bet it wasn't Wesley. I said, no, it wasn't Wesley. But that song was played years ago at, a fu- at the, this man's funeral. That's what he wanted after he finally got freed from her. And um, we played it. That was, yeah, go listen to Spirit in the Sky. Uh, he was happy to fly away from yeah. Okay. We don't ever get his perspective. We don't. Yeah, he might not have been allowed to have one. Yeah, I mean, that's why I just, it kind of fascinates me to think about him and that's why the best I can come with is he, he's up, he's somewhere in heaven saying don't 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 let her in please don't let her in. Uh, don't 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 give her me as a project again but yeah um, I almost wish the next chapter would have been him because um, yeah he could have yeah C.S. Lewis would have had some things to say about him. You know, for putting up with something for 30 years, 40 years. Um, hmm. Actually, I just had a comment, and my thought was I just kept thinking that this woman knew who Robert was when she married him. I mean, how foolish are we to think that we can change somebody else? That's what I'm saying. When couples come before me and they start acknowledging problems in the relationship but think that somehow they can fix those or what's even worse somehow if they have a baby they go away the problems go yeah you, you need you need to realize the person you marry is the person you marry i used to tell people to look at their in-laws because that may be what they'll have in 10 or 20 years that's who they're going to be married to yeah, the person you marry is the person you marry. Don't 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 marry a person to straighten out their flaws or their faults. That just never ends well. Um, anyway, this is a small chapter because it's really just this woman talking. No, Hilda, you must listen to me. The trouble I went to entertaining. Robert's idea was that he'd just slink off by himself every now and then to see what he called his old friend, to see what he called his old friends, and leave me to amuse myself. But I knew from the first that those friends were doing him no good. No, Robert, said I, your friends are now mine. It is my duty to have them here, however tired I am and however little we can afford it. You'd have thought that would have been enough, but they, they did come for a bit. I'm sure. That is where I had to use a certain amount of tact. A woman who has her wits about her can always drop in a word here and there. I wanted Robert to see them against a different background. They weren't quite at their ease. I'm sure they weren't. Somehow in my drawing room, not at their best. I couldn't help laughing sometimes. Of course, Robert was uncomfortable while the treatment, that's what she called it, while the treatment was going on. But it was all for his own good in the end. None of that set were friends of his any longer by the end of the first year. <sighs> Wonder why. Again, possessive love, um, which is not real love. And then he got the new job, a great step up. 
But what do you think? Instead of realizing that we now had a chance to spread out a bit, all he said was, well, now, for God's sake, let me, let's have some peace. <laughs> That's nearly, that nearly finished me. I nearly gave him up altogether, but I knew it was my duty. I've always done my duty. You can't believe the work I had getting him to agree to a bigger house and then finding a house. I wouldn't have grudged it once, Graf, if only he had taken it in the right spirit. If only he had seen the fun of it all. It's, it, if he had been a different sort of man, it would have been fun meeting him on the doorstep as he came back from the office saying, Come along, Bob. It's no time for dinner tonight. I just heard of a house near Watford, and I've got keys, and we can get there and back by 1 o'clock a.m. But with him, it was perfect misery, Hilda, for by the time your wonderful Robert was turning into the sort of man who cares about nothing but food. Well, I got him into the new house at last. Yes, I know it was a little more than we could afford at the moment, but all sorts of things were opening out before him. And of course, I began to entertain properly. No more of his sort of friends. Thank you. I was doing it all for his sake. Doing it all for his sake. Every useful friend he ever made was due to me. Naturally, I had to dress him. They ought to have been the happiest years of both our lives. If they weren't, he had no one but himself to think. Oh, he was a maddening man, simply maddening. He just set himself to get old and silent and grumpy, just sank into himself. He could have looked years younger if he had taken the trouble. He needn't have walked with a stoop. I, kind of beaten down, I guess he looked. I'm sure I warned him about that often enough. He was the most miserable host. Whenever we gave a party, everything rested on my shoulders. Robert was simply a wet blanket. As I said to him, and if I said it once, I said it a hundred times, he hadn't been always been like that. There had been a time when he took an interest in all sorts of things and had been quite ready to make friends. What, what on earth is coming over you, I used to say, but now he just didn't answer at all. He would sit staring at me with his great big eyes. I hate a man with dark eyes. And, and I know it now, just hating me. That was my reward after all I'd done. Sheer, wicked, senseless hatred at the very moment when he was a richer man than he'd ever dreamed of being. As I used to say to him, Robert, you're simply letting yourself go to seed. The younger men who came to the house, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault if they liked me better than my old bear of a husband used to laugh at him. I did my duty to the very end. I forced him to take exercise. That was really my chief reason for keeping a great Dane. I kept on giving parties. I took him for the most wonderful holidays. I saw that he didn't drink too much. Even when things became desperate, I encouraged him to take up his, writings, his writing again. It couldn't do any harm by then. How could it help him if he did have a nervous breakdown in the end? My conscience is clear. I've done my duty by him if ever a woman has. So you see, it would be impossible to, and yet I don't know. I believe I've changed my mind. I'll make them, the host of heaven, people running heaven, I'll make them an offer, Hilda, I will, not I will not meet him if it means just meeting him and no more. But if I'm given a free hand, I'll take charge of him again. I will take up my burden once more. But I must have a free hand. With all the time one would have here, I believe I could still make something of him. Somewhere quiet to ourselves. Wouldn't that be a good plan? He's not fit to be on his own. Put me in charge of him. He wants firm handling. I know him better than you do. What's that? No, give him to me. Do you hear? Don't consult him. Just give him to me. I'm his wife, aren't I? I was only beginning. There's lots, lots, lots of things I still want to do with him to him. She probably thinks for him. No, listen, Hilda, please, please, I'm so miserable. I must have someone to, to do things to. It's simply frightful down there, Greytown. No one minds about me at all. I can't alter them. It's dreadful to see them all sitting about and not be able to do anything with them. Give him back to me. Why should he have everything his own way? It's not good for him. It isn't right. It's not fair. I want Robert. What right have you to keep him from me? I hate you. How can I 
pay him out if you won't let him let me have him the ghost which had towered above like a dying candle flame suddenly snap flame snapped suddenly a sour dry smell lingered in the air for a moment and then there was no ghost to be seen kind of like the woman who grumbled that became a grumble they, they just go away they cease having any humanity left in them. So, other reflections, comments. Um. Self-combustion. <laughs> Self-combustion. <laughs> I, I know some people like that. They're just going to explode one day. Particularly when they don't get their way. They're just, they, they'll just explode. Yeah. Other reflections. Before we go to the Bible. And... I think he took the blessed or the meek a step too far. Yeah, I think, he did. I think that's what C.S. Lewis was. Being meek doesn't mean um, weakness. Yep. Yep. I don't know what kind of life he may have had before. It said, or it says he, um, she said he was, he was different you know, before, and then he kind of like changed, whether he was just beaten down or he couldn't take it anymore. But then, like, we don't know anything about Robert, but don't know what his life was before. Yeah. And that his, like you said, like his mother or whatever had done the same thing, so he just took it. It was normal for him to be Yeah, you wonder, wonder what his life was before. But he had friends before. He had friends before. He brought friends with him into the marriage. One thing I tell couples in pre-marriage counseling, I always wish I could get them like to make a covenant contract with me. I don't really care about seeing them before the marriage. Come back and see me in about five years. It's really when I'd love to, when I'd love to talk to them. And one of the things I always point out to them, and this is, and the younger the couple, this is more of a concern of mine. People change. This person you're marrying is going to change. And that's why if you marry an 18-year-old, you may not recognize that person by age 30. Because some periods in our life were changing quicker. And more dramatically. So again, don't think you can change somebody and don't expect that person to never change either. You know, that's why the commitment to marriage is, is, is to be committed to not try to change you and be committed to you if you change from what I see right now. You know, what you see, you know, I tried to keep it a secret. Now it's on the podcast. I tried to keep it a secret for my kids who are married now and they waited till late to marry by my standards. I was 23 and Tammy was 19. That scares me now. <laughs> you know, I didn't have enough sense. At, at age 23 and 19, our brains aren't fully formed. You know, so yeah, people, the people we marry will change. You know, that better for worse thing is, 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 is important. Um, you don't need to be part of the worse like this woman was. But, um, yeah, people change. And I, I, would, I would love to have seen him beforehand. Did C.S. Lewis write this before he was married? Mm -hmm. Way before. I'm surprised he got married. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Mrs. Moore is still alive. Yeah. And, and go, go study Joy Davidman. You know, there was a popular book written recently, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Have you read that? I know I talked to one of somebody's book club here in High Point about it. It was a popular book. It was Nick's nurse who wrote it. I was a little dubious of it, but I, I went and read it, and she did her homework. And she wrote Becoming Miss David's, David, Miss, Becoming Miss Lewis from Joy Davidman's perspective. She was a remarkable human being. She had an intellect to, to compare to C.S. Lewis's. She loved serious conversation like C.S. Lewis. Yeah, there, there's a reason he didn't marry he was well into his 50s when he married Joy Davidman. It didn't last long. But yeah, go watch Shadowlands. But yeah, with his background, particularly with Miss Moore, he, he, well, obviously he was late. He was hesitant about getting married. And, um, but he finally did. He finally did. Jeff? Yeah? I've got a question. I think we all have had someone in our lives who was this woman. Who mm -hmm. is this woman? Have you in your ministry seen a person like this change? Have y'all seen people like that? 
Um, for those of you that are with me on Wednesday, and this week in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we see Eustace Clarence Scrub, you know, the boy who had that name and almost deserved it. And uh, we see him turn into a dragon because of greed there. And he gets undragoned by Aslan. And you're actually going to see this in the next chapter, by the way, a little piece of this. The undragoning of Eustace was very painful. Actually, what you're going to see in the next chapter is the first person who is willing to be fit for heaven. Because again, part of, part of this is you can't bring your hellish ways into heaven. You've got to be willing to give up your hellish ways. You can't bring your idols with you into heaven. Whether it's an idolatry of fill in the blank, an idol of control. You can't bring those with you into heaven. In the next chapter, you're going to see one person who's going to give up his idol, his hellish way of lust, and how painful it is. When Eustace is undragoned by, 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 by um, Aslan, is very painful. He tried to claw the dragon skin off himself. He couldn't do it. But Aslan could. Didn't mean it wasn't painful. The work of sanctification is, is hard work. It feels like pruning. It feels like God is cutting stuff away from us, cutting stuff out of our lives. It, you know, if, if sanctifi- the, the purpose of God in our lives as Christians is He's going to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Which means, think about all that means. It, it, it means that we may have to let go of some things. We might have to walk away from some things. We might have to find a sense of security elsewhere. I might have to decide that I want to do absolutely nothing except what God wants me to do. It's not about what I want, what I don't. I might have to go to a cross. Yes, it's going to be painful. I might, but some of us have our idols. We have our hellish ways. And what the whole book's about, we will choose those over heaven. They're such a part of us. Redemption, if someone is redeemed, it's not a self-help program. Tony Robbins and Stephen Covey are not to be the ones that are going to redeem people. If, it's, if someone's going to be redeemed, it's got to be Jesus. It's got to be the painful. I mean, he'll let you into the kingdom, but after that, he's going to fool with you and bother you until he makes you like Jesus. Um, Lewis calls that the intolerable compliment to you. Yeah, he's going to get stuff out of your life. He's going to cut people out of your life. He's going to bring situations to your life to help you learn patience. This woman had no patience. I mean, he, she could have learned how to love Robert. She could have loved, learned how to serve Robert. She could have learned how to put the needs of Robert above her own. That, that, there are people out there that do it. I, I will say this. I don't think anybody can... This shouldn't surprise you. I don't think anybody can be sanctified except, except through the work of Jesus Christ. Your New Year's resolutions won't do it. I don't think she could have woke up on January and said, I'm going to be a different wife from this point on. I don't care if it was January the 1st. I don't think she could have done that. So that's why change is very, very hard. And I don't know that people even know how to change. It's not, you don't change by going to Barnes & Noble and finding the right book off the self-help section. You don't change by finding the latest popular guru to tell you how to find your best life now. You don't cha- I mean, it, it does take Jesus. And, and then, but then as soon as Jesus starts changing you, you can't say, well, Jesus, I don't want to let go of that. Yeah, I mean, these people love this stuff that they want to bring with them into heaven. That's, that's who they are. How serious can you be if you say, Jesus, don't work on that part? Because I know recently I've had this thought about Jesus just have your way mm-hmm. with me or with him. Someone I dearly love, just Jesus have your way. My way is no good. I failed my way. My way is not So if you have your way, you love me more than you care about me more. You care about me more. Mm-hmm. So if you have your way in me, and that's what we should say, but then we need to understand after we say that, and we really want that, how insidious human nature is. 
You know, I, 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 I don't always do as good as I know to do. You know, sometimes I will give it to Jesus Christ. But then I get in a meeting with church folks, and I, I, I know what you really need to do. <laughs> it's just so insidious. Again, that's why it takes Jesus. It's a journey. Discipleship, this is Eugene Peterson's definition. Discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. Little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit. And it's all about letting go of some things and um, allowing the Spirit to prune our lives. Um, you know, uh, sometimes we don't even know what, how important some things, some attitudes are to us until we are forced to lose it. Sometimes we never know Jesus is enough until Jesus is all we've got left. And then we know Jesus is enough. A long obedience in the same direction. See, I, I kind of do okay for about six hours, and then I got three hours the other direction. But then you got to pull back, and over time, over what what? See, we don't even give our lives enough time to to develop virtue anymore. You know, if it doesn't feel like if it doesn't feel good, we won't keep trying it, regardless of how it feels. I mean, um, our emotion, another one of our idols that we love is our emotions. We'll do what our emotions tell us to do, and we won't do what our emotions, you know, well, you know tells us not to do. I mean, we make, we make our family an idol. We can make our nation an idol. We can make, I mean, and C.S. Lewis was really big on, we don't, we're smart enough, those of us in the faith, we're smart enough not to make idols out of bad things. Now, there are a lot of people who still do. They'll let drug addiction control their life. They'll let alcohol control their life. For most of us in this room, that may not be our danger. We let the good things um, just get an inappropriate place in our lives to where our lives are controlled by those things. Or in this situation, it's a bad thing, but she, she's convinced herself it's a good thing. Oh, she's gonna, oh it's the right thing. She's, she's loving Robert. And, you know, you could... You could mm -hmm. And you know, and it's hard. I mean, I've got children, grandchildren. I know that it could be God's will that God sends something into their lives to change them into Christ-likeness. It's very painful. And watch how quick I try to help them. I'll fix it. I'll make it better. Watch how quick I'll step in. And you know, I have to remind myself, this may be God's will. I was listening to someone. I better not say that. Might, you might have been you. Um, I was I was in a public place recently, and I heard this man. And it, it, he was wit, and I really I think he was witnessing to another man. And I really appreciate that. But the the and this is fine. Don't. It, it made for a really fruitful conversation between my, me and my wife because we were listening to this. You know, I, I'm glad that when he lost his keys, he prayed, and Jesus got Jesus took him to his keys. I'm, I'm glad. And, and pray for the little things. But, you know, he could have lost his keys. This, I'm going to quote my medical wife. He could have lost his keys. He could have prayed to find his keys. And God's answer might have been, you need to go to a neurologist. <laughs> I mean, I would step in and help you find the keys. I mean, we don't know all the time how we may be interfering with God's work. In other people's life. And we do it out of love. So I don't blame her completely because we all have the tendency to do that. I would love to make life as easy on my kids as possible. And I've seen my kids go through some really tough things. And, and um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to let 
the Spirit work in their lives? My problem is, my, my confession of myself is that I want to let go and let God, but then I also know God has some expectations mm-hmm. to do something. And then I get, and the confusion I know is not of God, but I still have, I need help with that. That's why it really is a moment-by-moment moment thing. It's a day-by-day day thing. Every day. That, you know, you'd think I'd get my mission statement by now, but I still say it every morning. Because human nature being... i got to keep pulling myself back. Because if I don't do that, I may think that my mission is to get my retirement, my pension to the point I can retire well. You know, I mean, you know, or be secure financially, or I mean, the list can go on. I mean, every day you need to be able to say, what is it? Why is Jesus getting me out of bed today? And because it, yeah, human nature, you know, if you want to do theology well, keep the work of Christ absolutely amazing, but keep human nature very sinful too. Again, read screw tape letters. The enemy is so so specific and wise about how to tempt us. I would like to think there was something that could have redeemed her. It seemed like she pooped very quickly. If she would have just said, I mean, at least when I get to heaven, I will say, fix me. You know, I mean, you know, C.S. Lewis, another one of his books, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. This is where he says he wants to become like Christ. He says, you know, when he gets to heaven, if, if, if they say, just come on in like you are, he'll say, no, 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 take care of me. He'd, he'd say, you know, it's like saying, you know, you got bad breath, but come on in with your bad breath. He'd say, I'd rather have my breath sweetened up a little bit. You know, yeah, you got to want to be fixed. And, and again, and some of us want to fix other people more than we want to be fixed. It's so easy to see their sin better than our sin. And, you know, that's yeah, so easy. Did Robert have any responsibility in this order? If he had stood up to her? That's why I think, I think, I think if C.S. Lewis, cause if somebody could set him down and said, and I would have started maybe with, blessed are the meek. Moses is referred to as the meekest man that ever lived. So think Charlton Heston. Meek does not mean being a doormat. You know, I mean, I, I, somebody should have set him down and said, you can be part of God's sanctifying work in your wife's life. And he, could, he should have said no. I mean, yeah. He, he just, he, he um, yeah. That's why I, would, I wish he had written a chapter on Robert. Because and, and Robert might have been addicted. Who knows? Robert might have been addicted to having somebody take care of every need, make every decision, solve every issue. You know, I've had to tell a few people, I'm your pastor, I'm not your mother. You know, because some people look for somebody to just, and I, and I had to, somebody corrected me one time, I'm your pastor, I'm not a poor definition of your mother. <laughs> if your mother is really being your mother, because we're going to run across one of those too, if your mother's really your mother, that doesn't mean just giving you what you want. That means giving you what you need. And yeah, that's hard. But yeah, some people some people are joyful codependents. They want somebody to to live their life for them. But C.S. Lewis did sort of give us a glimpse into Robert because we know Robert's already in heaven. He's already there. He's already there. Yeah. This is very convicting. All these characters are very convicting for me. Exactly. I mean, the, the situation in our family is an example that has been so convicting. I mean, Uncle Harry killed himself. Mm-hmm. And Aunt Elizabeth at the funeral home said, turn the body around so everybody will see what he did. Because they want you want them to see mm-hmm. the bullet hole in the mm-hmm. Seriously. Vivid memories from my childhood. And, um, and of course, everybody talks about you know, he's better off now, and everybody understood why he did it. And, I mean, it's been an example, and I read this one thinking, oh, well, that's, you know, Elizabeth, you know, um, it, it's, it's something that people wondered forever. Why did he put up with it? Why was she like this? 
but it certainly gave a lot of understanding to somebody who had alcohol issues, who was suicidal. Um, you know, it, it, it created compassion for somebody. Also, it created this big question, why do you live with it? I'll even throw this out. If there were children in this home, I would hold him responsible for not leaving. He, he needs to bear some responsibility for that. it was deep, deep Southern Baptist, you don't ever do it. Um, but the, the questions, I can just remember the conversations about this marriage um, and the family, not in front of her. Um, it, was, it was a big issue. So do we have these examples to make us think, too? Um, <coughs> yep. In, give you, in the next chapter, you're going to see a person with a lizard on his shoulder and his lizard's his problem his lizard is lust so here he's bringing it physically bringing it with him into heaven um this might help you read the chapter he's bringing with well they offer to cut it off cut it off do surgery well the person's like well i don't want to hurt it (laughs) but to make sure you catch the point in the next chapter when the lizard is painfully removed it becomes a big white horse and the person rides off on it yeah yeah we can cogitate over that some more next week when 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 you do finally allow the spirit to defeat something in your life like that it, it, it might be a great blessing um Well, and we should be quick to show gratitude to people. But I know some people in my life, I want to say, don't make me responsible for your happiness. You know, some people you'll never show enough gratitude to. You know, and that's always the way people respond to them. So. I'm surprised you haven't counted how many times the word I was used. Because sometimes you say that, but over and over it was I, I, mm-hmm. I, I. And you know, even if you think about how we talk the right sentences, you can't start with I. I'm sure C.S. Lewis, the great English scholar, yeah. is making yeah, a point there. Yep, yep. She's a narcissist. You know, one of the most significant books I wish everybody would read. Um, oh, look at the title. Two authors. The Epidemic of Narcissism. Our culture is eat up with narcissism. And, you know, a lot of those narcissists are trying to be Christians without doing something about their narcissism. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember 40 years ago hearing hardly anything about narcissism. I, I was taught about narcissists, the Greek myth, but I, I, I was never taught about nar- Narcissism is an issue in our culture in so many levels. What I want is got to be truth. It's got to be right. I seek my bliss. I don't want to postpone my happiness. This is what I have for dinner tonight. Aren't you interested? I mean, the list goes on. We, we're birthing these. I'm not sure, by the way, and this gets me in hot water a lot of times. I've been saying it for 40 years because we've been saying it for 2,000 years. It's harder to say in this culture. You know, one of the reasons why we might be creating so many narcissists in this culture is we've always said beware of child-centered marriages. Beware of child-centered families. I've always said that to couples. Your most, you know, read the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Man shall leave his family, they shall cleave, they shall become one. The marriage is the first priority. But when you make child centered marriages and the child's wants and wishes and happiness and pleasure and entertainment and schedule runs the world, and we wonder why we're creating a culture of narcissists who, who can't ever let go of what they. Won't. Um, 
Yeah, I'd love to bring somebody like C.S. Lewis back and say, just look around this world and reflect. Because he's writing in the 40s and the 50s. But human nature is a constant. That's why if you don't rein in human nature, you know, if, if you don't, that's why you can't just say, well, this is how I'm created. I don't care what the issue is. This is how I'm created. This is how God made me. Because again, at that point, you're hanging out in Genesis 1 and 2, but you've forgotten the rest of the Bible. Yeah, God, God tells me, I'm not God, my wife tells me <laughs> that given my family heritage, the Pattersons from the mountains, uh, my Scott-Irish heritage, um, that by nature, let's see, the word she uses... Let me just say, uh, another, it's another word for a donkey. <laughs> uh, a, another word for a donkey in a vacant space. <laughs> yeah, that's who I am by nature. I mean, you know, my, the Pattersons, the family, my, my, I got a long line of his. We have creator evolutionary war. Yeah, we just, we'll just shoot you and bury you in the backyard if we dislike you. I mean, I, I, you can't say I was born this way. You know, I was born to have... I was born to be a womanizer. I was born to... You can't say... The whole point of the Christian faith is we've got to get over how we were born. We've got to get over human nature. We've got to get over uh, who we are. By, that's, that's, you know, that's Genesis 3 through the end of the Bible. The work of Christ in our life. That's the work of sanctification. Yeah, I, I've never... There's never been a period... In Christian history, and I don't care what the pagans do, but there's never been a period in Christian history where Christians would say, well, this is the way I've been born. You, you know, God made me this way. Well, if God made you this way and He's happy with it, what's the point of Jesus? You know, I, I remember when I was in seminary back in the Dark Ages, there were a group, they wore a button that said, the Lord is my shepherd and he knows I am. I'm not going to even fill in the blank. You can fill in the blank however you want to. The Lord is my shepherd and he knows I am. And, well, he does know. He knows I'm a donkey vacant space by nature. <laughs> you know, I, I, could, I could straighten the world out. I certainly could straighten my kids out if they would just, if they would just tell me. But, yeah, we've we got to overcome nature. You know, I'm sure this is who this woman is by nature. She didn't. She didn't have to work hard at this. I don't think. She didn't take a course on how to be this way. You know, her class. This is who she was by nature. And you know, it's the first. Again, I had a close friend of mine who's a scholar at Duke who did telling me ten years ago the problem in the Christian church now. People want a theology of creation and no theology of redemption. And I would have never dreamed 10 years ago how much I'd see that come to fruition. This is the way God made me. The Lord is my shepherd and He knows I am. I'm going to seek my bliss. I'm not going to postpone my happiness. I'm going to have my own pronoun. I'm going to have my own pronoun. <laughs> you know, the list goes on. You know, the, the epidemic of narcissism. You may want to call me he. The whole world might want to call me he. Okay, I'll say it. There's an instructor at Duke Divinity School now. The world calls her her. She prefers to be called he and they. I... Narcissism. I don't know. It's not on my shelf. <laughs> I don't know. Here's my question. I've been told that there is. And so if someone says, let's go to the Bible to prove this, if they're going to a woke Bible. Well, well, there was an inclusive language Bible produced as far back as when I was in the seminary in the early 80s. For God so loved the world that God gave God's only begotten child so that no one should... And it gets really weird to read sometimes. Because you can't use male pronouns, you know, for God. And they really didn't want you to use male pronouns even for Jesus. He was a male incarnation of God. 
you know, yeah, narcissism comes in so many forms. Greek. In the Greek, there, there, there are pronouns in the Greek and the Hebrew. Your, your, your ancestors knew what a he was and knew what a she was. They knew where babies came from. I mean, you know, that's, again, C.S. Lewis taught me 30-some years ago, beware of chronological snobbery. That's his term. We're so much more enlightened. I mean, you know, every generation thinks they're smarter than the last generation. We think we're smarter than all the generations ever existed. And human nature is a constant. You've got to be careful as to how incipient and seductive narcissism is. What generation Well, the Enlightenment was the 18th century, 1700s. Yeah, I can give you plenty of books to show you how the Enlightenment... C.S. Lewis was a medievalist. After the medieval period, after the Reformation, what comes? Renaissance and Enlightenment. Man is the measure of all things. And some of that's okay. To, I, I like what Michelangelo did. But notice he brought his renaissance skill to the service of the church. But by the time you get into the 18th century and the Enlightenment, then you come after the Enlightenment to the Industrial Revolution, and we were making better mousetraps, and then, you know, we thought we really were brilliant. Then we come into the 20th century, which has been the bloodiest century in human history. Then we had the 1960s, 1970s. I mean, go read little book, Carl Truman's T-R, not like Truman the President put an E in it, like true man. Carl Truman wrote a book called The Development of the Modern Self, and it's heavy, hard, dense reading. And it was so popular that everybody went to him and said, please, give us something simple. So he, he created, he took it all down, made it small. It's called This Strange New World by Carl Truman. Where he shows how we got to this place. It didn't happen overnight. The 1960s just didn't pop up out of nowhere. And by the way, the 1960s didn't go away when 1970 showed up. And, it, you know, I can give you... Yeah, we, we know where this stuff came from. It's the creation of the modern self. The modern self. So we've been on this path for a while. But at least until the last 30, 40, 50 years... We kind of knew we were on this path. Now people are just swamped in, in postmodernism. That's the philosophical term. And that's why you hear, somebody in, you hear somebody say, well, everybody has their own interpretation of the Bible. That's a postmodern way of looking at things, which what that means is we can never know truth. We can never read a document. We can never come to a consensus about what truth is. And by the way, usually when somebody says, well, we all have our own interpretation of the Bible, what that really is meant to do in a postmodern way is stop conversation. I can't reference the Bible. You, you just discounted... Um, speaking of the Bible, that's what I want to end with. Uh, yeah, you know, all of this is not new stuff. We know, we know what... You know, I got a book on my shelf called The Primer to Postmodernism because I like stuff abridged. Yeah, we're in a, we, we went from the medieval world to the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, the Industrial Revolution, uh, to the Renaissance, Enlightenment, to the Industrial Revolution. Um, we went to, then we went to what we call modernity. Now we're in what we call postmodernity. At least in the modern world, you sought for truth. In this world, there's no such thing. You have your truth, I have my truth. That's the difference between postmodernity and modernity. And C.S. Lewis was confronting the modern world, but he saw postmodernity coming to where we don't even seek for truth now and value the search for truth. You just have yours, I have mine. So, yeah, it's, 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 it didn't just pop up last week. You know, what, you know, there's a reason why every major denomination in America is splitting. There's a reason. Um, there's a reason why the church is growing south of the equator and not north of the equator. Because who went through the Renaissance? Who went through the Enlightenment? Who went through modernity? Who went through the Industrial Revolution? I mean, we got here for a lot of reasons. Um, but, you know, it's really hard when, I have a, when I'm limited to 170 characters 
to tell you about that. And we're in a culture now, they want, they want it, you know, snippets and sound bites. Just to close, and this is kind of fun. Um, one of the things I strongly recommend, I always recommend the book of Proverbs, because our age is full of information with very little wisdom. But if you want something fun, read the book of Proverbs in the New Living Translation. The New Living Translation is the scholarly remake of the Old Living Bible. The Old Living Bible is done by one person. But the New Living Translation was done in the style of the, of, of the Living Bible. You know, thought for thought instead of word for word to try to get the thought across. But it was done by a group of scholars. So it's called the New Living Translation. Uh, just to finish up where we were at, I didn't, you know, here's the New Living. Proverbs 21. I'm going to start, I'm going to go to Proverbs 21, Proverbs 27 if you want to take a note or look at your Bible. But you may want to listen unless you have the New Living Translation um, or compare it to a more, I usually use English Standard Version for my serious study. But um, here's Proverbs 21, um, verse 9. It is better to live alone in the corner of an attic than with a contentious wife in a lovely home. Uh, verse 19, that same chapter. It is better to live alone in the desert than with a crabby complaining wife. Here comes Proverbs 27. Um, Proverbs 27, let's look at 15 and 16. They come together. A nagging wife is as annoying as the constant dripping on a rainy day. Trying to stop her complaints is like trying to stop the wind or hold something with greased hands. Um, you know, I, I do wish there was a verse in there about a nagging husband. <laughs> they, they exist. They do exist. But the Bible in C.S. Lewis is just the, their world is their world. Their world is their world. But I do uh, recommend, if you want wisdom, use the book of Proverbs and, and can consider something like the New Living Translation. Okay, I owe you some time. Go in peace. Have a great rest of the week. Uh, one chapter next week, and chapter 11 is amazing too. <laughs>